Shabbat Shalom. Um, I was talking to Rabbi on my way home from work, and he's like, how's your day? I said, terrible. One of the worst days ever. He goes, that's normal. Like, It is? <laughs> he goes, yeah, if you're going to be delivering a message that's important, everything's going to get thrown at you. So, um, so yeah, I found out my pants are too long. I had a wardrobe malfunction, so I didn't wear my suit. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about Parashat Noah, and I'm hoping, God willing, to present a perspective that I think might, uh, might help, you know, as we're, as we're working towards the Messianic age, you know, because in Messianic Judaism, our goal and our purpose is to begin to live the Messianic age now. When Jews and Gentiles are together as one people, worshiping the same God, serving the same God. But what, I, what I'd like to do is, you know, please understand this is not like this big theological thing. The, the, what's fun in Judaism is you can present a bunch of different perspectives, a bunch of different thoughts. And the idea is not so much that they're theologically sound, that we need to put them down and make them part of the bylaws of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is where I grew up. You know, you had your bylaws, and I had them memorized. And if you stepped outside of those bounds, out you go. Judaism doesn't work that way. What's typical within Judaism is you and I might get in an argument, and I mean, it's like, you heretic, you're crazy nut, where are we going for lunch? That's how Judaism works. Because Judaism doesn't have the systematic theology that is so solid that you have to, anything that I say, better be gospel. The idea is it's a perspective to help enhance your thoughts, to help you wrestle with something, to, to be able to think about it and go, yeah, that's an interesting thing. And, and it presents different ideas that you can go ahead and go, ah, oh, well, that, that makes me think of this maybe in a little bit different way. It's, it's like holding a gem from different angles. And nothing that any one person says is the culmination of that gem. It's actually just one of those cuts. And that's why the sages, you know, they say, how is it that Hillel and Shammai, these two opposing schools in a lot of ways, uh, how is it they can be so diametrically opposed in so many areas, and yet our sages tell us they are both the word of God? It's the prism, it's the cuts, it's the different angles, it's looking at it from a different perspective. And if you were to take it from this light and say under this circumstance, that would be applicable. However, in this circumstance, maybe this would be applicable and they can both be right. You know, like uh, uh, Tevia said, you are right, you are also right. He's right and he's right, they can't both be right, you are right. So that's Judaism in a nutshell. As, as Rabbi would say, a bunch of Mishagas. So what I want to talk about is the concept of redemption. Because I think with Parashat Noach, this is where we see the concept of redemption for the first time, really and truly. Now, of course, we have different aspects within the Garden of Eden, but this one, I think, is where we actually see something, a different element, and that's actually establishing a covenant. And the covenant that we have with Noah is essentially the foundation for all other covenants. And we're going to talk about how those covenants, in a way, build upon one another. 
but also show that none of the covenants have been nullified because of a new one coming in. There is a relationship issue and all of these covenants apply within a certain element. So we're going to talk about that. You know, I would say maybe as we talk about this, think of it from the perspective of the construction of the temple. The Beit HaMikdash may be rebuilt swiftly soon and in our days. There are several levels, and Dr. David will probably correct me because I'll probably get it wrong, but we have the court of the Gentiles, we have the court of the women, we have the inner court, and of course we have the actual uh, building itself that has the holy and the holy of holies. As you go in and progress in, there are limitations on who can go where and what's to be done as it goes into degrees of holiness. So I want you to think of covenants in that way. Each covenant deals with a different degree of holiness for a specific purpose. But everybody can relate to all of them in some way. So, but first I want to talk about redemption. Now, if you grew up in the Baptist church like I did, redeemed was a big word. You have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Yeah. Actually, that's Pentecostal, sorry. Uh, <laughs> I had some of that too. But, uh, so, but, the, but the concept of redemption, why is there redemption? What's the need for redemption? Especially growing up in our modern age, when you deal with modern, well, I would say modern Judaism, which would be more reform and conservative, which we are more exposed to. Um, they, they have a larger population than the Orthodox and a lot of times they'll bring, us, bring about this question of why would we need a redeemer? We've always had one. In every stage of God relating to man, there has always been a redeemer that has come in to usher in a new era, if you will, to bring about restoration. And that redemptive process begins with God first judging, dealing with the iniquity, and then preserving a remnant and then, in a sense, starting over. But at the same time, bringing us into a higher degree of holiness after we've gone through this process of correction. Okay, you've been corrected. You now know what is wrong. Now let's talk about what is right. So, so redemption is essentially repairing a breach, reclaiming what has been lost, and then bringing it to a restorative state. And why did, you know, in the case of the flood, you know, we, we talk about where God calls one man and says, your family, get them in, get anybody else in that will come. Of course, nobody does. And I thought it was interesting as I was reading uh, some commentaries that, uh, and I guess I never thought about it, but that the door remained open while it was raining. And it just made me think of, you know, we had just come out of the high holy days. And it's like God is hesitant to close that door of teshuvah, of repentance. And we see that in the story of Noah. It starts raining. Nobody believed him. Ah, it's not going to rain. All of a sudden, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. And they're, you know, you would think at that point they'd be going, ooh, he was right, let's go. But still they didn't. Still they didn't. And then God closes the door once it gets really, really bad. He says, all right, get everybody else in. And it says, and God closes the door. God closes the door, uh, closes the door for teshuvah and, and the redemptive process. So he had to bring about this 
intervention. He had to intervene because man had corrupted things so much so that now something greater than the one that destroyed it had to correct it. It's almost like when your kids get in the kitchen. They ain't cleaning that up. <laughs> You're going to have to. <laughs> so so uh, God's kids got in the kitchen. <clears throat> so... Uh, so, I, I, you know, Rabbi was like, well, be thinking about what you're going to talk about. And he said, you could be like a good Hebrew roots boy, and you could just go ahead and talk about the Nephilim. <laughs> so, coming from the Hebrew roots movement, when we got to Parashat Noah, that's all we talked about. And then we talked about, well, are the Nephilim still here? Yes, they are those little gray men that everybody thinks they see. So... Uh, it gets weirder. So we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> However, <laughs> are, the, uh, are the Nephilim real? Yes, the Torah says they are. Uh, you know, if you read from, a, uh, I would like to say Rabbi Lancaster, but he would not like that. But uh, Lancaster's commentary talks about it as well. The ancient Jewish uh, Midrashim, uh, the Targums, all point out to the fact that, yes, the Nephilim were real. They were a, an angelic hybrid with humankind. They perverted and crossed the line, if you would say, in a way, the separation of wool and linen. We see throughout the Torah that we are not to mix species, and that's what happened. And there was this corruption that went about through that. So there was a, 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 a physical corruption, a spiritual corruption. People stepped out of line. Because what does it say in the Torah? Each after their own kind. That's the way he created it. That's the way it should be and we stepped out of line. But there was another aspect of it that had nothing to do with the Nephilim, as it were, and that was mankind continued to act in an evil way. They carried out the tradition of their father Cain to the point that one family, that's all they, that's all they did. They murdered, they extorted, and it had gotten so bad that God's like, this has got to stop. There's no morality left. There's only one person that remains moral, and that's Noah. Well, of course, his, his ancestors that were still alive, uh, Methuselah was still alive. He passed away right before the flood began. And according to tradition, they all preached. The ones that were alive at the line of Shem preached to, the, uh, to all of the people and said, you know, God's going to wipe this thing out. And the thing is, is they all knew who God was. It's not like today where, well, does God exist? Everybody knew that because all of the people that were created at the beginning, most of them were alive up until just before the flood. So Seth, I think Seth died, what, 100 years or so before the flood, something like that? Um, so, I mean, these, these people are around. It's not like they didn't know who God was. So we're dealing with an aspect with the flood. It was an all-out rebellion against God. It's not we don't believe God exists. We know he does, and we don't care. It, was, it, it went from apathy, which we see Cain's sin start with. starts with apathy. He doesn't care about his brother. And apathy leads to either manslaughter or murder, which way, whichever way you look at the situation with Abel, but it starts with apathy. It starts with, I'm not my brother's keeper. And that was his frame of mind from the beginning. So his children carried on, unfortunately, his tradition to not care about his brother. And it got that bad. So God had to intervene. But how? How does God intervene? He chooses somebody. 
You know, I think it says somewhere, maybe it's in the Psalms or something. Uh, read the Bible, you'll find it eventually. Uh, he says, I, I sought to and fro about the earth, seeking who I can show myself strong to. God desires that relationship. And he found one in Noah. So he chose a vessel, or as the uh, Tanya says, a vehicle of Hashem, a chariot that will carry out his will like a chariot does. Doesn't fight, doesn't argue, just goes where it's sent. And that's what we're supposed to be. And Noah did exactly what God told him to do without question. Of course, the sages say that uh, there's a little bit of a problem with that because he didn't intercede for his generation. And Avraham did. Even with Sodom and Gomorrah, as horrible as it was, Avraham Avinu actually interceded. So Noah didn't do that, but he did do exactly what he was told. And so that brings to the next concept, and that is, even though it says in the Torah, it says Noah was righteous in all his generations. But we see that maybe not perfectly. So the question is, what's righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous? Because if you compare uh, Noah to Abraham, there's really no comparison. Abraham was very hospitable, and we don't see where Noah really was. That wasn't his quality. So they're obviously, in terms of perfection, the sages say there's no comparison between the two. But they say in his generation he was. So the thing is, is that God's not looking for somebody who's perfect. Because perfection in Hebrew actually means mature. So to be perfect. So when God essentially tells Abraham, walk before me and be perfect, he's saying, walk before me and be mature. You know what is right, do it doesn't mean you're not going to make a mistake because if the Torah expected perfection, it wouldn't give us offerings for when we mess up. There would not be corrective measures in the Torah. You would simply be cut off. So obviously God does not expect perfection. What he looks for is a willing vessel who's willing to be obedient, to follow what the instructions he's been given and the deeds reflect that person's heart. Be a doer, not just a hearer. Uh, as James, the brother of our master, said. So I found it interesting when you look in the uh, when you look in the scriptures, you find uh, usually in, in uh, Christian Bibles. In Christian Bibles, in the uh, what's often called the Old Testament, you'll find the word chen in Hebrew, which means uh, grace or it can be favor. But you'll find in Christian Bibles, it's always in the Old Testament that word is translated as favor. But the Septuagint has a Greek comparative, and that Greek comparative is, uh, I'm probably going to say it wrong because I know Hebrew better than Greek, but uh, karin. And karin means, it can mean grace, it can mean favor, but it's used interchangeably with the same word in the New Testament that is, you know, for it is by grace you have been saved. So in the New Testament, it's grace. In the Old Testament, it's favor. So which is it? Yes. Okay, so, um, so let's, let's look at that. So the concept of grace, of chen, is, and we see this in the text with Noah, so I encourage you to go and read it. Um, it says, but he found chen. Hashem found chen in, the, in Noah because he was completely righteous in his generation. So it gave you a qualifier. It didn't just say, I'm going to give him unmerited favor as it's often translated. 
It is unmerited, yes, because nobody is perfect. And so to, in order to actually get that level of favor, you would have to be flawless like our master was and no human being is. However, there was something. There was something that caused Hashem to look at him and bestow chen. What was it? It said he was righteous. It says he walked with God. That's the difference. You know, you know we, and we quote it all the time, but it's a wonderful example. King David. King David was an amazing God, amazing God, whoops, uh, amazing man. He loved God. He was called the man after God's own heart. We say that, we beat it to death. But it's a beautiful example because here on this one side, he's this man that loves God, has all these prophecies, and he's the, he's the, uh, the forerunner to Mashiach himself, the one that we all look to when we say, okay, Mashiach's gonna be like this, except for this one thing, and that is that same passion that he had for God when he used it for his own purposes was equally destructive. And that's the difference between when we are a vessel willing for God, you know, to, to be used by God, a chariot, a vehicle. Let's uh, it mechonit in Hebrew, as a car. So uh, in modern Hebrew, uh, or ofanaim wheels, bicycle. So, but to be a vehicle. But if you're one of those vehicles that's got squeaky wheels and bad bearing grease, uh, you're going to present some problems. So, and the thing is, is in those cases, when somebody is doing what God has purposed him, it can be for great things. But when he uses that same gift for his own purposes, it's equally as destructive. So, um, so the, this requires then for somebody to actually exhibit some traits that makes them a willing vessel, a, a willingness to be obedient. And not only a willingness, but actually a track record. And Noah had the track record. So, favor is given to Noah. Noah says, or God says to Noah, I have found favor with you. So I want you to do this for me. Build me an ark, you and your family. And then, of course, the implication is, and anybody else who will come. So whose merit are people being saved? The merit of Noah. Because he walked with God because he loved God, because he pursued God. Because of that, he had favor. And then where does the grace come in? Everyone else that came in under the umbrella of Noah, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, if you like veggie tales, <laughs> Noah's umbrella, uh, open it up and it rains. Um, <laughs> it's funny. Okay, uh, you don't have to laugh, but, but it is funny. Uh, watch the show. Uh, <laughs> So, but if, so for everybody to get on the ark, they receive grace. That's unmerited. Those people didn't do anything. They didn't build the ark. They didn't hear the call of God when the early warnings came. They came in late. So they are essentially under the favor of Noah. So then we have another example. We'll just fast forward just real quick to qualify this. What does Moses do when he's interceding for the people? If I have indeed found favor in your eyes, do not reject this, your people. He's asking for the favor that God has with him to be extended upon a people without merit. He's got some merit, and he's basically trying to use his merit to save the people. That's grace. 
So we'll fast forward just real quick to uh, our favorite Baptist passage. Um, And Miranda smiles. Uh, And that is, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. What does that mean from a Jewish perspective? It's not your favor. It's not your grace. So we have some, you know, the name it and claim it, or I've heard it said once, blab it and grab it. You know, they kind of have, well, you have the favor of God. No, you have the grace. The master's got the favor. And he chose to give it to you, not of yourselves. It is God's gift to the master. And the master chose to extend it to you. So we cannot boast. Now, does that make a little bit more sense? Why we can't boast? Because I know a lot of people, I did, like, <laughs> I was chosen by God. No, master called you, master chose, God chose, God chose Yeshua. His favor was given to him. He chose to bestow it upon us, and he didn't have to, but he did. So that's kind of just my little thoughts on the difference between grace and favor. All right, so favor is recognition for that person's behavior and the condition of their heart. Grace is the favor of another bestowed on another by the one who is favored. So it's interesting, you know, if we look in the text and we see, uh, you know, towards the end of Bereshit, uh, talks about where, uh, you know, Terah has, Terah, who's his dad? Anyway, whoever Noah's dad is, <laughs> I'm a great scholar, right? Um, uh, so Noah's dad has a son, obviously, uh, and he calls him, Noah, he said, for maybe he will bring us rest from all our toil. So, so, so Noah actually is a play on words in a way, uh, and it essentially means rest. But also, interestingly enough, chen, grace, is Noah spelled backwards. Cool stuff. A man came up with that. <laughs> We're not that smart. We get things backwards, but it's not on purpose. All right. So, you know, as I said, Noah did something that conveyed a heart uh, that showed him to be willing uh, to be a vehicle for God's redemption. You know, and as we talked about, he wasn't perfectly righteous, but we read in Hebrews 11, for it is by faith that so-and-so did this. It was by faith that Noah answered the call of God, built the ark. God used him because he believed and did. Um, so he was, as the master would say, faithful in a few things. So like the sages talked about, well, he wasn't perfect, but God used him. He doesn't expect perfection. He just expects someone to be willing to do what God tells him to do and to be obedient and not make excuses. Um, you know, that's the difference between Saul and David. Even though the things David did were way worse than what Saul did, the difference was David repented. Saul made excuses. Um, so why a human vessel? This is a really good Hebrew roots question. We don't need man. Why man? Man's corrupt. Don't listen to man. I told one of my Hebrew roots friends, I said, you know, if you bring that to its natural conclusion, you'll reject the Bible, because guess what? Man wrote it too. It was the pen of men that put it down. So how do you know that they conveyed the will of God perfectly, like uh, our Baptist bylaws tell us? 
<laughs> so you don't. There's faith. There's believing that God is all-powerful and He knows what He's doing. And when He chooses a person to do something, it's because they're going to do it the way God wants it done. And so we have to trust the will of Hashem. If we challenge things like the validity of the Bible, we're challenging Hashem's ability to uh, instill in His own creation and select the people that are going to do the job. So even Nebuchadnezzar is His servant. That's why I kept saying while Obama was in power. Um, Sorry, strike that. Trump too. There we go. Now we're even. Okay. Okay, so why won't God do it himself? And so let's go back and look at creation. Was God done creating? Couldn't he have continued beyond the seventh day? Or even into the seventh day after he created the Shabbat? Yeah. Why not? God could always make it more incredible. It's hard to imagine. I mean, especially when you look at space. You know, I'm a Trekkie, so I love space. And, and the things that are there are, are, are beautiful and amazing. God could have made it more incredible if he wanted to, but he chose, it says, and he ceased. Didn't say he was done necessarily. He chose to. It was an act of will to stop creating. But then right after he establishes this concept of stopping, he tells man, you be fruitful, multiply. You fill the earth. You subdue it. All of this I give you to be under you, under your authority. Now you create. So you created this world and now it's our job to create, to do what our daddy taught us. And that's how to create, how to build, how to make better, how to instill blessing upon others because everything God created was for that purpose, was to sustain, nourish, and help thrive. And that's what we're supposed to do, to partner with our Creator in that. So when we do something wrong that requires redemption, that requires God to intervene, what's He going to do? He's going to call somebody. I need you to be, to be a part of this. You help make the mess, <laughs> or, you're, or you're, uh, your race did, you need to help clean it up, and I know you're capable. So He picks people that can do the job. So we have those examples. We have Noah, we have Abraham. Abraham's probably one of the best next to Messiah. These people that were perfectly capable to do the will of God to bring about the redemptive process. So God ceased from his work and then he partners with mankind, or rather, more correctly, mankind partners with God to continue the creation process. He's not doing it alone anymore. We're now, we've got skin in the game. If you're a Jew, some more than others. Um, so, little joke. So, so God, it's not just that God has partners in creation. He wants partners in creation because that's why he made us, to partner with him in this finite existence, to essentially reveal godliness to the rest of the world. So, and this is something we learn in the Tanya too. Highly recommend you read it. It's really cool. Um, but I, I would recommend, you know, maybe getting Rabbi Gordon's podcast because he explains it. Because <laughs> if you're just reading it, you're going, okay. <laughs> That's why we need scholars like, like uh, Zelig Moshe ben Hillel. So, but the Tanya is an incredible document that 
kind of breaks things down to the more grassroots level of people like me that don't have a uh, doctorate in physics. Um, so, but it talks about the fact that the patriarchs, through their process of perfection, became perfect vehicles for Hashem. Abraham, of course, being the best example because he did everything God wanted him to do. And one of the things that God wanted him to do was to also intercede. So that's, that should be the goal. The goal is to become completely surrendered. You know, uh, like, like we learn in Judaism, I think it was Rabbi Sachs that said that the person who exercises the ultimate expression of free will is the one who surrenders it to God. And that's what God's looking for. And then what do we have? We have liberty. We have chayrut. We have liberty in surrendering our will to Hashem because then we rise above the natural elements of this world and we're on God's schedule and, and on, his, on his plane in terms of blessing. So then, you know, as we follow the story of Noah, what we've come to after, you know, the earth has been mikvahed, if you will, uh, if it's gone through Tevila, a pretty, pretty rough one. Uh, in fact, I had a friend um, when his wife got saved, again, Baptist, um, she, uh, she got baptized in a swamp which I'm like, how does that? That's definitely, it's living all right, but not the kind of living the Bible talks about. It's teeming with all kinds of stuff. Um, but like alligators and copperheads or cottonmouths rather. Um, so he told her, he said, okay, so this is how it works. The pastor is going to dunk you down two times. Then he's gonna bring you down the third time. The Holy Spirit's gonna bring you back up. She's like, uh-uh, we ain't doing that. So it's just kind of funny. Uh, so it was, a, it was a, a traumatic experience for her because she thought that the Holy Spirit was supposed to bring her up out of the water because he wasn't going to do it. So, so obviously, uh, you know, this mikvah was not a pleasant one. Um, so let's, let's look at, just real quick, um, a section out of the depths of the Torah. If you do not have it, highly recommend it. So he talks about the concept of covenant. So we know that after... Uh, Noah comes off the ark. What does he do? He builds an altar. And it's also interesting, it says that he offered up animals, clean animals. So then, of course, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, well, see, see, he ate clean too. It's like, well, now hang on a second. The, it actually says, I give everything to you for food. Just like the plants, you can eat anything. So that, that doesn't work. But obviously, there was a knowledge of what was clean for the purpose of something different, not for food, but for offering up to God. We see with Abel, he offered up lambs. So the, the rabbis tell us that, that Adam was taught, that Adam, that Adam was taught what was the, the proper uh, thing to offer up. So obviously, no pork rinds on the altar. <clears throat> so, um, so he offered up the sacrifices, and God accepted, and he replied by offering him a covenant. A covenant is a formal declaration of commitments that define the relationship between two parties. Ancient covenant making, uh, the ceremonies typically required animal sacrifices as a component of the covenant ritual. Every covenant entails terms and conditions incumbent upon both parties in that covenant. For his part, God promised Noah that he would never again flood the earth with water. And Noah, his son, and his sons, rather, had to commit to maintaining certain standards of ethical conduct. So, 
we see in Genesis 9 that God is actually now giving the conditions of what is acceptable. Now, this is something we tend to brush over, I think, or at least I did, you know, because we're like, let's get to Moses. This is where it gets cool. But this sets the stage for something that really helps us understand things that we're even struggling with today, I really think, I really do. Uh, If we understand the concept of the Noahide covenant, we then understand how God relates to mankind in general and then helps us better understand the struggle that the sages, our sages, the apostles were dealing with when they were trying to figure out what to do with all those Gentiles. So it kind of sets the stage for this concept because the problem is, you know, coming, I think, from a Christian world, we have this hashkafa, we have this worldview that God's got this group over here and he's not going to relate to the rest of them until they become this group over here. If you're not saved, you're damned. That's, the, that's what we grew up in in the Baptist church. So God doesn't have a relationship with you. He's just got a relationship with me and my little group. And that's not true. God has a relationship with all of mankind, for all mankind is his creation. Uh, a, a midrash that I quote all the time because I think it's beautiful is that when the, uh, when the Sea of Reeds had collapsed back over the Egyptians, all of the angels were rejoicing. Because of the destruction of the wicked, the, the Jewish people have now been brought, brought on dry land and they're saved from their enemy. So what, what happens? God's crying. He says, why? You know, why are you crying? Rabbono Shalom. He said, because those are my children too. So when we understand that the Egyptians are his children as well, we then understand that God has a relationship with all of them. It's just the relationships are different depending on the covenant, if you will, that they're under. Was that a wrap it up? No. <laughs> I didn't bring my clock up here, so I'm sorry. So, so let's look at just real quick what a covenant really is. A covenant, of course, is, as Lancaster said, has terms and conditions, but it also, in a way you could say, it's eternal. It, cannot, it can be breached, but it is still in effect. It's just the difference is, is whether you're on a blessing side or a cursing side, whether, whether you receive the blessings for the covenant or not. But it doesn't end. The covenant lasts as long as it was established for. In that way, it's eternal. So if you have a covenant with a neighbor and that covenant's supposed to be a year long, it doesn't matter what that neighbor does to you, that covenant is still in effect. It's just now this guy's going to be reaping all of the negative sides of that covenant as opposed to the positive. So that's the concept of a covenant. It's different from a contract. A contract, when you're in breach, the other person can terminate it at will. But God didn't do that. All covenants, if you get nothing else from what I say, all covenants are irrevocable. All covenants are eternal. The time and the period that they are established for is how long they will last. And God told all of his children forever. He didn't say uh, until you mess up and then we got to come up with a new covenant because that one didn't work. That's not what this is. This is a first stage in a redemptive process. So the question is, is whether which side of that covenant do you want to be on? Because God establishes what those obligations are. In the, uh, in the Torah, it says that they are to be fruitful and multiply. They are not to eat meat with blood, uh, still in it, 
Uh, of course, the sages interpret that to mean that you aren't to eat the meat of a living animal. Unfortunately, some people actually do that. Sever the limb of an animal, eat that limb, and keep the rest of the animal over for later. Uh, it's absolutely grotesque. Do, do not murder and put murderers to death. Now, of course, if you've been around Judaism long enough, you know that there are seven laws of Noah that were established by the sages. A lot of people say, that's not in there. No, but there's direct inference. If you're to work through this process, you know that these other things have to come into play because otherwise you have vigilante justice and, and just, just a bunch of mishigas. So the sages put in, do not worship idols or other gods. And this is by direct inference because God is establishing this covenant with mankind. So obviously, why would you want to have a relationship with other deities when this is the one that saved you, this is the one that redeemed you, and he's giving you this standard to live by? So by direct inference, why would you want to worship something else? That God didn't save you. That God didn't redeem you. Do not blaspheme God's name, obviously. Do not murder. Do not commit sexual immorality. That's by direct inference from the fact that it says to be fruitful and multiply. Do not steal. That one... You know, you got to work with it a little bit, but think about it. What are all of these rules, these four that God gives at the beginning? What are all of them dealing with? Stepping outside of your bounds and basically seizing something that belongs to somebody else, whether it be their life, their limb, uh, or um, the proper relationship between people. Do not eat things that are still alive and establish courts of justice. Like I said, obviously you can't have vigilante justice. But what does God say he's going to do? It's not just that he's not going to send rain, but he also says there will still be the seasons. You know, uh, you know seed time, harvest, cold, heat, winter and summer. So he, he promises that he's going to do that. He promises that he won't send a flood. And he gives conditions for being in the right relationship. He said, not if you mess up, am I going to do this? He just says, I'm going to do this, don't mess up. So, the, so then we come right after this covenant is established, we then come to Bavel, which it can be interpreted one of two ways. Balel, it could be a play on words. Balel means confusion, but you could say it's two words, Bavel, gate of God which brings us to the next phase. So what happened? Mankind decided we didn't want to listen to the covenant that God made with Noah. We decided we wanted to make a name for ourselves. We didn't want to be fruitful and multiply. We wanted to stay in one place. But not only that, we wanted to remove God. So there was, there was a, a few different thoughts. I, you know, some people, they just wanted to live in heaven. Some people wanted to dethrone God. And there's a, there's a midrash that talks about the fact that Nimrod, with his silver tongue, that he can convince people, listen, I have the ability, I have the wisdom of the Nephilim, as some say. I have the ability and the knowledge to be able to ascend into heaven and to unthrone or to dethrone the God of the sky so he can't send rain and destroy the earth like he did to our ancestors. So he convinced them to unite behind him. Now, in the Hebrew roots, we have a lot of fun with this because there's these weird, ambiguous words talking about the tower and the fact that Bav El, gate of God, so then we go straight to Stargate SG-1. Like, oh, that was what was on top of the tower. Cool. <laughs> so, so, but the, the point is, is that whatever man was doing, whether they had a Stargate, whether the, the tower was actually a spacecraft or it was just a blatant act of defiance, the point is, is that God said, 
When they come together and they team and they put their heads together, there's nothing they can't accomplish. So the idea is, is whatever they were trying to do, they were definitely going to get to at least phase one. And that was get to the point where they could try to dethrone. Of course, they're going to fail miserably. And we see that because they were making the attempt. So we look at, you know, the fact that they refused to fill the earth. They came to one place. But Jewish tradition also tells us something else. They exalted themselves above God. We will make a name for ourselves because every race at the time or every group of people, they were defined by their deity. They said, no, we don't have a deity. We don't have Elohim. We have ourselves. And then we see something called apathy. So we have in Jewish tradition that the people didn't care much about the life of those who were building the tower. It says that one brick would fall and they would mourn the loss of that brick. A person would fall off the tower and they were up. Somebody take his place. So that would lead to murder. Apathy is the beginning part of murder, simply not caring. So it was a downhill spiral. So you, see, you can actually look through that and I think extrapolate most of the things that God tells man he expects him to do as one people, we refuse to do it. We walked contrary to it. So God says, you walk contrary to me, I will walk contrary to you. So we have what I like to call the first exile, the first real exile. And that was where God now scatters mankind from that place, confuses their languages and sends them abroad. Oh, you don't want to be fruitful multiply? That's fine, I'll do it for you. You're only going to school together with people that you can understand and you don't have a choice. You will be scattered. So as punishment for the defiance of God's covenant with Noah, the kingdom that they intended to invade and conquer got there first, and that was God's kingdom. Let's go down and confuse our language. Let's scatter them. They want to conquer us, let's beat them to the punch. Of course, they never would have succeeded. So, so we learn that that's essentially a punishment. You look at what God does to Israel, what does he do when they defy the covenant? They get scattered. You have an invader that comes in and pushes them off. The wicked die and the righteous are scattered. So now we come to the next, you know, the next portion of this. And of course, we'll be looking at this in the next Torah portion. And that is, but when God does that, when God punishes, when he scatters, he always holds back somebody. He says, hang on. So what a lot of people don't realize is that Abraham was of noble birth. His father was the viceroy of Nimrod, according to Jewish tradition. Very, very close to that family. And he had rebelled against Nimrod and his father, who was an idol maker, and said, why are we worshiping these things that I can bust with a hammer? <laughs> you know? So, uh, so he, he pulls him back because he sought after God. And what does Abraham go and start doing right away? Right after everybody gets scattered, he starts drawing them back to God. And so then that brings us to the covenant that God made at Sinai. What is that covenant? That covenant is the descendants of Abraham under a specific line that are to carry out the mission that their father had started, and that was to draw mankind back to the God that they defied at, Bav at Bavel. So that brings us to 
you know, how do we relate to this covenant today? This covenant is still in force. And that was what uh, some people have struggled with. Even Judaism today kind of struggles with it. It's like, well, uh, you know, for, for Gentiles that want to worship the living God, um, they just need to keep the seven laws of Noah. But if we look at Acts 15, which is a favorite passage within Messianic Judaism, it actually gives us something more. So some people think, well, you know, just to be a, 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 you know, a servant of the living God and not a Jew, I just need to keep the seven laws of Noah. No, that's just to be a good person. God requires more, and we see that in the Torah. We see that the sojourner who chooses to join himself to God, that there are stipulations. That person has a relationship to the Torah that's much deeper than the Noahide laws. The Noahide laws are just being a decent person. But if you want to draw closer to God, then you have a relationship to this covenant that God made with the Jewish people. And that relationship is, as we see in the Torah, the ger, the sojourner, the resident stranger. And what do you have when you bind yourself to the Jewish people, as Ruth did? Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. What happens? You become part of that commonwealth. You begin to enjoy the benefits, but you also have more obligations. So through that, you find that the apostles recognize this. Some people have said, well, the four, the four prohibitions given in Acts are actually the, uh, basically saying the Noahide laws, the first century version of the Noahide laws. No, they're much deeper, much deeper. They go much beyond what we see actually in, in the text. They establish uh, a concept of purity and holiness that is required for the Jewish people. What can be eaten? the kind of relationships you can have. The, uh, you know, the sages tell us that the prohibition of sexual immorality in the Noahide laws is determined by that culture. So that culture may allow certain relationships that maybe the Torah does not, but that's considered moral. How would they know any better? You know, you go to a tribal people that have never even heard of the God of Israel. How do you expect them to live by that standard? These are laws of common decency and morality. Just that, the foundation of what it is to be a decent person. But the apostles are requiring much more of the Gentiles because now they are part of the forerunners of the beneficiaries, beneficiaries of the covenant that God made with Israel. And they are essentially the firstborn, if you will, of the redemptive process that started with Abraham and the children of Noah. So you get, you get some of the, the, the benefits and the perks, but also the obligations. And those obligations are, that we see in Acts, they require a higher level of dietary regulation, requires a higher level of what is proper in your relationships, um, requires uh, a higher level of purity as you relate to other people around you, and it allows you to then fellowship and associate with the Jewish people that are bound by a covenant that requires them to keep to a higher standard of what is right. And the example that I gave earlier about the temple, the temple's purpose, each, each person, there, there are certain people that can only go so far within the temple. It doesn't mean we all can't benefit from it, obviously. The entire world benefits from the temple. But certain people have certain relationships that bring them further in to give them further obligations to be part of that ministry construct. So as you come closer and further in as you're permitted, 
there's a higher level of standard of purity, higher level of standard of behavior, and so forth. So how do we deal with the Noahide covenant today? A decent person is going to follow those things. But a believer in Yeshua who is not a Jew is held to a much higher standard of purity that allows them to fellowship and be a part of the covenant with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, you know, like I said, I, 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 I liken, as I, as I, you know, work through these covenants, what's the purpose? The, you know, like I said, the covenant that God made with Israel, the purpose was to begin that, or to continue, rather, the process of bringing all of the children of Noah back to God. Bringing them back in right standing with the Noahide covenant, at least. And if you accept Yeshua, he's got a, much, he's got a higher standard. So... Um, I think I have, I think I've actually pretty much covered everything, just inadvertently not looking at my notes. So, um, so that, that's, you know, those, those are my thoughts on the matter. Um, I think, uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully I conveyed it in a way that helps you kind of think about this covenant that's often just kind of swept over. We think, okay, there's the, there's the rainbow, cool, let's move on to better things. This is the foundation of it all, and the reason Israel exists. So some people say, well, you know, uh, why do the Jews? Why the Jews? Why the Jews? Because as mankind, we decided to defy, to defy God. We needed the Jews. Because they are the vehicle of Hashem's redemption in this generation. That's why God chose them. They are the Noahs of this generation. So, Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>